You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Andrew Butt, who is the founder and CEO at Enable, creating the rebate management software category used by manufacturers, distributors, and retailers globally to increase sales. They have just been labeled a unicorn company. On today's episode, Andrew talks about the startup ecosystem, UK versus Silicon Valley, expansion routes and advice for Silicon Valley companies, evaluating ideas for building a company, evolution of SaaS over time, key metrics for company tracking, organic growth versus acquisition, and much more. This is a jam-packed episode that people are going to love. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Andrew, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. And I want to say congratulations. I just heard you you passed 500 employees. I did a lot of research on your company, on your history before the interview, but for our audience out there, can you give a brief history of your career up until this point? Sure, absolutely. Yes. So I really started building software applications at a very young age. It was just me and one other guy in my school, really, who were into computers in those days. I'm starting to age myself a bit now, but we were always building computer software. And from there, we actually launched our first company together. So this was a friend of mine in school and me. And, and we started building applications and then from there really grew the business and launched new businesses. So I guess in one way, I've, I've never had a real, I've never had a proper job. <laughs> I've just always been sort of building and creating companies and working for myself. Uh, one thing I would say, though, is a huge experience was working with my co-founder, who actually runs a very large and very successful distribution company. And so I got pretty involved in that business and in distribution. And, and that certainly helped to form what Enable has now become. What was that first business partner you were working with? What's the history there? Is he still involved in your companies or is he doing some... Sure. You see, my other interest in life alongside computing has always been flying. And so I, I always wanted to be an airline pilot. And, really? Yeah, and that didn't happen. But I did stumble into a flying school in the UK as a kid, really, and met the owners of the flying school, started helping out with their IT and so on. And I met my co-founder there, and he was already a very successful business person running this and owning and growing this distribution company. So that was how we met. We were both learning to fly, and it was actually helicopters we were learning to fly. So, so the distribution partner now is the same person that you met way back then. Yes, correct. Absolutely. So he was a founder with me in this company, Enable, and remains a major shareholder. What a story. So, and how many years ago was that when you met? When we first met, year 2000, when we very first met. And then we built different businesses together. And this kind of enable as it is today, I think really kicked off in about 2016, 2017. But prior to that, we had various different businesses. Okay. So all the businesses you created up until this point, were they all in the UK or yes. were they international or were they in the US? No, they were all in the UK. And we always, or not always, but we had customers in the US and elsewhere from quite an early stage, but we never had a presence in the US. It was just like service remotely from the UK. And then this company though, yeah. would you say the majority of it is in the UK or the US? Or So we've just tipped the scale now where we have more people in North America than we do in the UK. 
Only just though. So of those 500 people, about 260, I would say, are North America, and then probably about 230 or maybe a bit less is UK, and then we have Australia as well. But we've actually got a big focus now in Canada. So for us, Toronto is a very big base, and, and that's where a lot of our people are. So tell me how the the difference in the entrepreneur ecosystem is between the UK, US, yeah. and actually, if you want to throw in Toronto, mm. I'm very curious about how those are just the dynamics there. Yeah. yeah, sure. No, very different, I would say. So in the UK, the approach to building a business, certainly when I was there, was really starting very small and growing organically. So you would try to get to profit quickly. And then you would invest some of that profit in growth. But it was really very steady growth and you could say quite cautious growth. And by doing that, it, it was hard to get big quickly because if you're only investing your own cash flow, then that's a very limited kind of source of investment. Whereas I think what I saw is in the US and particularly on the West Coast, then the view was if you've got kind of product market fit and something where you can really take the market fast, then there's a lot of investors who are willing to fund that growth. And it's absolutely fine to earn capital as long as you are capturing market share, you've got product market fit, and that your fundamentals are strong and that you can get to profit later. Obviously, if you can never get to profit, that is a problem. But as long as you can prove that you can get to profit, but you want to really capture the market and get to scale, then you can raise capital and you can invest that in growth. So that was a huge difference in mindset, I'd say, between certainly the West Coast and the UK. And then I'd say between there's this in the middle. So East Coast was not as aggressive as the West Coast. And over the years, that has changed. So I do think I'm generalizing. And there are certain investors in the UK and on the East Coast who are now a bit more like a West Coast investor. But I sort of voted with my feet and moved from the UK to the West Coast. And that's because I believed and I still believe that for uh, ambitious entrepreneurs, if you want to really build something big and impactful, then raising capital on the West Coast is, I think, what, what I did and what I would recommend. How has your mind have to shift from being a founder of a company that's grown organically or your money's coming in and you're reinvesting it to that VC-backed company where it's growth? How have you as an entrepreneur, as a founder, had to change over that time to accommodate each of those two? Yeah. Yeah. So it certainly was quite a big change. And I think in hyper growth, unfortunately, there is a certain amount of waste because it's like launching a rocket. If you're launching a rocket and you said, what's the fuel economy? It's just not that relevant. You're trying to get this rocket off the ground. So it's about effectiveness versus efficiency. And initially, you're just trying to get effectiveness. So you're not bothered about efficiency. And then later, once, once things are really starting to be effective, then you worry about efficiency. So I think your question, that was quite a big mind, mindset change. And it did take me a while. And I think some of the investors that I pitched were worried that I wouldn't be able to make that shift because they said, you're so you're going to be so careful right now because it's like your own money, basically. And um, we'll need you to be a lot more kind of aggressive at deploying this capital that we're going to inject into your company. Um, we're not sure you can do that. You know, um, so it, it certainly was a shift. But it's a, it's a long distant memory now, to be honest. We've been in this, this new mode for several years. So. so they were nervous about you deploying capital fast enough. Certainly, I remember hearing that from at least a couple. And they didn't end up investing. So and I'm not saying the current investors, but when I was pitching investors, I know that was a concern that might come up. Okay, then how did you prove them all wrong? I mean, were you just spend it or how did you... <laughs> Well, no, as I say, I think that was, I just remember that comment from one particular investor who we didn't end up raising with anyway. So 
But I just remember thinking it's a good point that investors that are investing in an early stage company don't want to put money into that company and have it just sitting there. They want that be deployed and hopefully for it to be proven to be a big success. But actually, if it's not going to be a success, they'd rather it you prove that it's going nowhere quickly rather than just hanging around and having it sitting in the bank account. So that did was on my mind in terms of how can I make sure I do that. But I think we, we made the transition. And now, as I say, that's a distant memory because we're growing so fast and we're definitely not concerned about, we are, let's just say we are deploying capital. <laughs> how did you decide that this was going to be the company that you were going to add rocket fuel to the fire? Why not take this company, the idea when it was very early on and try to do the organic, the self-funding? Sure. Yeah. I think we'd done the other route before for many years. Before this, then really we were in the business of building software for other people. We were a services company. So we would take on a software development project and then charge for that. And it was all selling time and selling services. And that, again, grew steadily, slowly, profitably, but was never going to be huge. And I dreamed of building a product rather than just building software for other people, but actually building my own product and doing that. And the particular space we landed on, which we'll talk about, rebate management, this was something where we were being approached by quite a lot of companies to say, this is something we need. Can you build software for this? So we built several bespoke systems to manage rebates. And it didn't take us too long to realize this was a real kind of gap in the market. So we said, we can take our dream of building a product and this is the thing which clearly is needed. I mean, it took us a while to get there because I, I was doing the previous model for many years, but I thought I better do this before it gets too late. How long were you doing that the previous model for? And you'd also mentioned starting many companies. Can you dive in a little bit deeper? What were some of those companies you had started before, before leading into the software development, sure. which that's actually genius how it's the market's telling you what to build. Yeah. And then pick, I want to dive in that more, but tell me about the, the journey up Sure. up to that a little bit more. Yeah, so I'd say the initial kind of company was just me as a kind of one-man band, just building software applications for people, and it was just very small. And then I met Dennis Short, who's the guy that was building a very successful distribution company at the helicopter school, and we got together, and he said to me, look, let's start a company together and really build software. So his company is called DCS, and we called our first company DCS e-commerce. And this is going back to like early 2000. And then it would start to, it would start to grow. So it was still building software for other people, but we were hiring a team. And we got to quite a reasonable sized team of maybe 50 people, for example, wow. by, by let's say 2010 or something. And then another business was that one of our customers actually approached us. So this is a company we were building software for. And they said, we've got a lot of ideas here, but we'd like some help. Would you consider investing in our business? So the two of us invested and actually became a 50% owner in this customer business. And th that was selling software for health and safety management and construction management and that type of area. So we built that to a good sort of seven figures of revenue. So not huge, but a good reasonable size. And that was eventually acquired by private equity in the UK. So that was acquired by a firm called Sovereign Capital in, in, uh, in the early like 2010 or 2012 or something. So that was also a good kind of experience. When they acquired it, yeah. did you walk away or did you have to stay there for a year or yeah. two? So I walked away, but the fun part of it was we continued to be a supplier. So if you imagine we were supplying this company and then we became 
kind of directors and shareholders in the company. And then the company was sold or acquired, but then we continued to supply that company with software development services. And so that was, yeah, was, that worked quite well. Um, and, and then really it was from that we then said, okay, we want to launch our own dedicated product business, which led to enable this, what we have today. So what was the switch from, hey, actually, let's, let's even go back further. I'm curious, why, what triggered you to say, hey, I want to sell this company to the private equity group? Why not hold on to it, build it even longer? So I, I think the fact of the story was, so Dennis and I were not really the lead kind of people in that business. So we'd come in later and invested and got, joined the company and, and became a major kind of major shareholders in the company. But there was the, the two founders, the two original founders of that business, and they were driving it. They were the driving force behind it. And so I think they, but we wanted to go in slightly different directions and it just made sense. It was very positive and amicable. So there was, it was all good, but they continued to run it as part of a larger group. And then Dennis and I moved away. But like I said, we continued to supply that company for many years after. So it's all good. Okay. And then, so companies sold, still got those re- relationships. Now you're getting more requests to build out this, all these different types of software. But one, you're getting more requests than anyone else or any other type. And that's the one you went, wait, there's something here. Do we jump on this opportunity or do we possibly miss the, the next big thing? Yes. Yeah. And, and I think for at least a couple of years, we were incubating that product business, if you like, within the services business. And we were using the profit we were making from the services to try and build and launch this product business. And that's what we did for probably a good couple of years. Up until about 2018. Well, why not in that time? Because it did sound like you're growing it all organic. Money's coming in, you're investing yes. into this company. Why not right when you saw that as a mm. great idea go, this is the one we're going to go raise funding for? Mm. Uh, I think just really, to be honest, lack of experience was what, and we, we'd never raised money before. And I think we also wanted to prove it out. And again, ideally get that initial product market fit. We could go to investors and say, this isn't just an idea. This is now actually live with quite a few customers and lots of good case studies. But I think we, we, took, we did take some time and that had lots of benefits in terms of the lessons we learned and setting it up for success. Uh, but the danger was, almost to your point, that we would just carry on for a long time trying to do both. And it did become clear to me that wouldn't get the, the best result. It was too diluted. We had to be focused. So that eventually led us to basically shut down the services company and, or not even the company, we, we pivoted the team. So the same team who were doing services moved across to the product. And then we tried to carefully wind down the services so we wouldn't disappoint those customers. And anyway, so that was a transition. And you could say we could have spent too long doing that. Uh, Talk a little bit more there, because one thing that comes up quite a bit on the show is mm. companies pivoting. Yes. So what, like that decision to pivot right there, how did you go about planning it? I think, again, we had to run them both in parallel. So if you imagine it was one engineering team and they were half the time building our own product and then the other half the time building products for other people and then we're being paid to do that. Okay. So that was quite manageable. And then we, we realized the product business was the way forward. That was the much bigger opportunity. But it would mean we would have to go from being profitable and cash generative to a burn situation. So we would have to raise uh, capital. And so really, that's when I came out here to the Bay Area and, and was knocking on doors. And once we got the Series A kind of secured, then we immediately started winding down 
because we, we then had the, the capital to, to keep everyone funded for a while. Did you first try to go to UK VCs or first stop Silicon Valley? So I definitely had conversations in the UK and Silicon Valley um, and elsewhere. And at that point, I wasn't even asking or saying I wanted to raise. I was just exploring. But it did become clear to me. And I just really felt I just knew that I wanted to do it here. So as soon as we got into actual fundraising mode, we did just show up here and do it here. And we didn't try to raise in the UK. Was it challenging, more challenging, I would say, or ask for a UK company to raise capital here in Silicon Valley versus a company that has a headquarters here? Were, were people asking you, hey, we're inter- if we're going to invest, you need to set up an office here? Or yes. What were those conversations oh, yes. like? I mean, I think the short answer is yes. I think it is more difficult. Um, I think Silicon Valley is fantastic and I'm, I'm a huge fan. So it's definitely possible and, and they really were accommodating. So I've got nothing negative to say, but it, it was harder because when I first came here, I was on a tourist visa. I didn't have a visa at that point very early on. And you're right, we didn't have an office here. We didn't have any people here apart from me. We didn't have a, a, a company, an entity in the US, didn't have a US dollar bank account. <laughs> so it was definitely a, a, a more challenging process compared to being a US company. For another European company or a company overseas that's looking to set up operations in Silicon Valley, yeah. how would you recommend the first steps? I mean, what did you do? What were some of the lessons you learned? Yeah. So I was very committed to being here. So I moved across and I, I had met some investors and said to them, look, I'm going to move here. I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm looking to raise uh, when I get here. And that, I think, is a good commitment. Because if you just say, oh, I'm actually living in Europe or the UK and just give me some money and then I'll leave, I don't think that works so well. So my wife and I literally had committed. We were, we were coming out here. We were moving our life here. And I think that was quite important. How did you convince your wife? It wasn't difficult. I, I literally went home one evening in middle of 2018 and said, how do you feel about moving to California? And she said, yeah, let's do it. Let's move, move tomorrow. <laughs> so she was easy to convince. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of back and forth there. <laughs> I was the one that took my time, actually. So she was sort of saying, let's get going. And I was saying, hang on a minute, I need to... She'd already made... A, so she was born in Hong Kong. So she'd already moved from Hong Kong to the UK. And so for her, moving from the UK to the US, she, she'd have done it. Whereas for me, I was thinking, do I really want to like, live in the US? I don't know. So it took me a lot longer than her to decide to do it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then when you and your wife came here to the US, I mean, some people say raising later stages is a lot easier than raising that first round. How have you experienced it? Yeah, I think that's how I found it as well. So I think the first one, we were totally anonymous. No one knew who we were. Uh, it's just, well, you know, what UK company doing? What's, what space are you in? And it was a new category as well. So that was definitely uh, the most challenging. And then I think we've been fortunate and the company has performed well. So that has really meant that investors then came to us. So that was our Series A originally. And then we've done a B and a C. And in both cases, we had really good investors knocking on our door. And it was definitely more, more straightforward than the Series A. What's it like working with Tier 1 VCs? Yeah, pretty, pretty good. I mean, to be working with people who are on the boards and associated with some of Silicon Valley's most successful companies of all time. Is brilliant. And that's exactly, again, why I moved here, because I wanted to be surrounded by those kinds of people who had that experience. So I think in terms of benchmarking, SaaS is very well defined now, and it's very easy to compare companies. And, and I've got access to all that data and knowledge and also understanding what companies do in different situations. 
and and of course these investors have gone way beyond where we are now in terms of scale. So I think it's always important to have companies that are just way ahead of where wherever you are, so that you can scale. So you had mentioned that the metrics are pretty well defined right now. What are the SaaS metrics that you're tracking that that people should be tracking in what stage? Because I'm guessing the metrics you track pre-seed versus Series B probably aren't the same ones. So any thoughts, suggestions on that? Yeah, I mean, I think in a kind of B2B SaaS model, then the number one metric really, certainly in the early stages, is annual recurring revenue, you know, ARR, and, and more importantly, ARR growth. So whatever the ARR is, it needs to be growing consistently quarter over quarter. So that's, I'd say, number one. And then the next one for me is burn, because the two are intrinsically linked. That Ideally, you want to be burning not very much and growing very fast, and that's hard to do. But the worst case is that you're burning a lot and not growing fast or not growing at all or whatever. So those two, it's almost like the top line and the bottom line, ARR growth and then net burn per quarter. And so those two I follow very carefully. Why did you say they're per quarter? Why not check it monthly, weekly? How often yeah. do you check? No, that's a good point. I mean, I think in B2B SaaS and kind of enterprise uh, segment where we are, then the, the overall cadence is quarterly. So it's like a quarterly sales cycle and it's all quarterly and the board meetings are quarterly and we report quarterly and public companies report quarterly. So but yeah, you're right. Internally, you need to be looking at it more than that. So, so we look at lots of things weekly and lots of things monthly, but we report quarterly. And I think also you can have a good week and a bad week or a good month and a bad month, but you can't really have a bad quarter. It's got to be, got to have every quarter's got to be good. Even you sort of have to, you might um, have again, good and bad weeks, but overall the quarter has to be good. What type of pressure is there or the documents that, that, you're expected to prepare for these quarter meetings because it's not a public company. It's not the same regulations. And each VC kind of has their own little, this is how the format, this is how we want it presented. Yeah. For our audience out there, what's the package that you prepare Mm. every quarter? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you mentioned pressure. I think the great thing that I found is that I do think we're very aligned with our board and very aligned with our investors. So what we want is what they want and vice versa. And there is a lot of pressure for sure, but it's our own pressure because we want we want to grow and uh, take market share. And it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really, because if a company doesn't grow, then it can't be financially strong and then it can't invest. And then it, 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 and it's, it, the whole thing goes the wrong way. Uh, whereas if you want to grow and you've got that ambition you want to deliver on, you have to perform. And, and if you can perform, then you can be financially strong and then you can invest more. And so... We put ourselves under pressure, really. And you're right, there's not that many regulations uh, as such, but we want to really be very prepared for the quarterly meetings. And the information is has grown over the years. In the Series A, it was not so much. And the investors were very helpful in giving us examples of what they wanted. And then as we've got bigger, it's become more comprehensive. But it's really just by, we have an overall company report, I guess, which would say what the key SaaS metrics are per quarter versus plan. We'd have the financials in terms of P&L, balance sheet, cash flow versus plan. And then each function, whether it's customer success, engineering, revenue, product management, people will have their own kind of uh, metrics they report on as well. And then those quarterly reports, how far in advance are you planning? Are you planning the next year, the next 24 months until the next raise? What's the timeline look like? Yeah. So We've got a long-term vision, which at the moment is probably, we actually have three time horizons uh, right now. So three to five years is the longest one we think about. And then 
the kind of two years before that is like the middle time horizon, and then probably the next three quarters is the immediate short term. And I think in terms of financial plan, we want to be looking at certainly two years at a time. So right now we're looking at this year, which for us finishes on Jan 31, and then the following year. And we've got kind of financials by quarter mapped out until the end of next year, which is January um, 2025. And then we have actuals versus plan. And, and that's, I think it's always like this year or next year. And let's even, I mean, we, we haven't even really dived into what is rebate management software. So could you give us a, some insight, yeah. a, an overview of that? Yeah. Uh, I'd say that rebates in B2B, quite different to the B2C idea, are a bit like a sales commission in the supply chain. So you've got manufacturers uh, making products and then distributors selling those products and supporting them, maybe. And those companies need to work closely together to support customers. And manufacturers very often want to pay for performance. So when the distributor has achieved certain um, value, volume goals, they've reached certain levels of purchases or certain levels of sales, then they will pay them a rebate, which is like a commission check. And it really is effective at driving behavior. Because if I said to a salesperson, I'll pay you $100,000 right now, and if you sell nothing, don't worry about it. Or if I said, I'll pay you $50,000, but then if you hit these sales numbers, I'll give you another 50000 then they'll probably do something and you know, work hard. So that's the same in the supply chain. And you can probably imagine that the people setting up these rebates are buyers and sellers. So buyers in the distributors and the retailers, and then the sellers in the manufacturers. And because they're buyers and sellers, they get very creative, very creative commercial terms. So it could be, again, different units of measure, and it could be that there's t- growth tiers, and that when you hit the next tier, you get a rebate right back to the first tier or not. It's, it's really complex. And if you're a distributor, you will have maybe hundreds or even thousands of manufacturers you work with, all very different types of products. And the, the rebate agreements are enormously variable. So it's really hard to track all of this and manage all of this. So that's where we started to say most companies were on Excel because their ERP systems couldn't handle that complexity. I was wondering um, what, you, what was being used before. Exactly. And, and that's where we started to just make it easier and have a system approach. But what's really happened across so many industries is the rebates have actually become all of the profit. So 20 years ago, a distributor might buy this for $1 and sell it for $1.50. Okay, and then that's... A- and for our audience, if you're not watching the video, we're holding up a water bottle right now. <laughs> okay, this water bottle. And so if my math is correct, that's a 33% gross margin. They buy it for a dollar, sell it for $1.50. And, and that was fine. But now it's very different. And actually, a lot of companies are selling at their buy price or very close to the buy price or maybe even below the buy price. So often they're selling below the buy price. Okay. And then they're, they're getting so many rebates if they can hit all the targets. The rebates are all of the profit, which is crazy, isn't it? That is, so you look at a big company and, and you would see a company might, they might have, say, a billion of revenue a profit of 50 million, and then their rebate income is 100 million, for example. So without the rebates, they're actually losing 50 million. So that's how the industry has pivoted, because basically manufacturers want to pay for performance. They're not prepared to just give a margin for the benefit of having something in inventory. Uh, So rebates have become very important. We're talking about trillions of dollars globally. So it's a huge number. And it's something which most people have never even heard of. 
until probably the last, I'd say the last two years. So people were, companies were doing it on Excel. Yes. And they were coming to you saying, we have all these contracts. Could you write software independent for us? And then you said, wait, let's just do a white label one that could be used globally. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And there's different, many different ways it can work. So we, for example, have lots of distributors who use our software and they use it to manage all the rebates they receive from their manufacturers. And then we also have manufacturers who use it to manage all the rebates they pay to their distributors. But then also distributors might pay rebates to their customers as well. So, uh, and they can be interrelated. So uh, there can be, say, three parties that are trading and the rebates depend on what I sell to you. But, but I, so I buy products from one person, sell it to another person, and the rebate I get from the first person depends on the fact I'm selling it to you. There's a lot of complexity and kind of different models. And, and, and we've turned this into a collaborative platform. So it initially was just like a calculator. It was like a rebate calculator for the finance team. But now it's actually more like a kind of marketplace where buyers and sellers come together, negotiate these rebates, and we grow through the supply chain because each of our customers take us into their trading partners free of charge. Their trading partners can log in free of charge to enable. And then some of those convert into full customers and start paying us money. I'm just wondering two things. One, the sticky factor of this, because I'm guessing once the software is there, churns probably almost nothing. Yes. And then the other is the data you're collecting must be crazy. Yes. Those things are both correct. So there, there is a real kind of exercise to embed the software and fully implement it because to deliver the most value, we need to ingest the transaction data from our customer. So we really need to know all their sales and all their purchases. And that can take some time. So there is work involved to get this implemented. Although the way we've built it means it's much faster than anything else that's on the market. But then you're right. Once the customer is on board, they're very unlikely to go away unless we really do a bad job because it's, it's used every single day. And you're right that the churn is, is very low. And then you're also correct the data. Yeah. So we've got, imagine all the purchases and all the sales of all the distributors and retailers and manufacturers that use the platform. And we've got all the agreements in terms of who gets paid what and when and why. So a lot of data there. What would ha- have more data on transactions and, and logistics? Yours or like an ERP system? We actually take all the transactions out of the ERP system. So let's say purchase invoices or goods receipt or whatever the transaction is in the ERP, that goes straight into Enable. And I think one thing we have is we have both sides. So we have the purchases and the sales from each of the companies on the platform all in one place, essentially, whereas an ERP system just really has the data for that one company. And then in the past, you also acquired a company, Profectus Group RDM Platform. Yep. What was the decision with all the growth, with kind of access to a ton of capital to go out and acquire a company versus build it internal? And then what were the parameters or thoughts around that? Because you, know, you acquire, so outside the podcast, I'm an investment banker. When you acquire another company, you're acquiring that culture. There's a lot of yes. disruption in that. What was the thoughts there of acquiring this company or internal or the thought process? Yeah, so with that one, the software they had built was actually very similar to what we had built. So we weren't really buying it for the technology. It was more for the team. So they, there were some very talented people. And 
I think all of them are actually still with us. So that's been good. It's coming up to a year now and, and everyone has remained and they're very good people with a lot of domain expertise. And that's an area we've struggled because we've hired a lot of people and all of the people we've hired are very good, but a lot of them are not knowledgeable on the subject. And obviously we train them, but it's, that takes time. So where we can find other companies where they've got those really knowledgeable people, that's a huge asset. Also, of course, they had great customers and they had great revenue. And the other key thing with Perfectus RDM is they were in Australia and we already had quite a few customers there and a few people, but it was very small. So by, by bringing them on board, it, it significantly increased our market presence in Australia. And right now, companies are staying private so much longer. So I have two, two parts to this question. The original, what I wanted to ask you was, with the growth of your company, how are the, the investors in that staying stay private longer? Or is that kind of mind shift switching now with the current environment? But I'm also curious, and I just thought of this right now, with companies staying private longer and your clients being private companies, your data must also increase in value as they stay private longer, wouldn't it? I don't know if I follow the logic on that. So what, what, why would uh, the value of data be related to whether a company is private or public? if they're public, so much of that information gets out into the public sales you know that yeah. but if they're not and it's yeah. private and yeah i don't know no maybe i mean I, 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 yeah i hadn't even thought of that i mean i think what you're saying is just even the basics like what a company's revenue is for example their yeah. total revenue yeah you're right we would know that because we're pulling all the data and that in itself has a value but we, we haven't even we're not even doing that we're more in the detail of the data in terms of what someone is buying what someone is selling are they buying? Are they selling? How could they do better at what they're you know, buying and selling? But yeah, you're right. We've got a lot of companies in the platform with data like that. So, well, Going back to the original one, yeah. though, right now, are investors that stay private yeah. a lot longer or is MindShift starting to switch a little? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for a start, so we're a Series C company right now and we're in triple digit growth and we have been since we started. So it's growing fast, but we're still, we're not huge. And I'd say in the US, which is where we would go public, where we will go public eventually, then I think you want to be at least, let's say you want to be at, say, 300 million of, of revenue, I think, to go public. And we're not there, and, and it's going to take us certainly a couple of years um, to get there. And we will get there. We will get there, but we're not there now. I, I don't think we're really having those conversations about should we stay private or because it's just we, we definitely will be private until we hit that kind of threshold. But I think your point is right that that the capital that's available privately now is a lot greater than it ever used to be. And you see companies that are way bigger than some public companies that are still private. So I think the general sense is correct that companies are staying private for longer. I think the benefits of going public are quite, there's quite a few of them. Well, obviously, raising capital for the company. But again, I think private markets can give you the same now. There's liquidity for uh, all the shareholders and the employees, which is great when you go public. And I think. There are alternatives, but not as good as going public. I think also it can help you to have a better company because in order to go public, you have to run things in a very systematic way. It has to be a very predictable business, beat and raise, beat and raise. So it can really help you to build a better company. And then finally, I think some customers only want to do business with public companies. Some of the really conservative, cautious companies, they won't even, that they want to use a kind of very established public company. So those would be the reasons to go public. But I do, yeah, I think companies are staying private for longer. It is interesting that companies only want to do work, work with public companies. I hadn't thought of that. In this journey that you've mm. taken, you haven't taken a vacation or really like a, a mm. block of time off mm. between companies. Yeah. I mean, many 
guests we've had in the show, they'll build a company, take a year off, travel Europe, then get ready for their next idea. How come it's just been gone? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always got something that I want to do. So in terms of, it's not like I'm trying to think of the next idea. It's been very almost organic in terms of how one thing has led to another. So there hasn't been any natural gaps. And I really like uh, what I do. I like working. And I'm, I feel I'm very privileged because I get to travel and go and see customers, go and meet different people and teams within the company. And I can combine work and pleasure. So I think I have like one overall existence, really, where I'm doing some pleasures, some work, but it's all just blurs into one. So I, I just don't feel the need to have a long break. On this journey, what's the most or maybe one of the most valuable pieces of business advice you've yeah. received? Yeah. I mean, I think it come, would come down to hire people that are better than you. So hire very strong people. And also just surround yourself with very strong people everywhere. So it, certainly people you hire, but also advisors, board members, if you can select really good board members and investors and just the kind of subject matter experts, really. So surround yourself by, with extremely strong people. And then also don't put any one of them on like a, don't listen to one of them and think that what they're saying is gospel. It's important to listen to lots of people and take and take different things from different people. And then from there, I think you have to have your own mind as well. So you have to make the decision, decide what to do and back your judgment. And it's better to make a high number of decisions and get some of them wrong than to be to procrastinate. I think those are, I think sometimes in the past, I've li sort of listened too much to say one person or been hesitant to commit to a particular path. And I, I've really learned, we, we have this thing now, disagree and commit, which I really like. Where, what is that? Where I'll, I'll say to, let's say, my immediate team, this is the topic, what, what's your thoughts? And we'll get different views around the table and some people think it's a great idea, a terrible idea, and I listen to it all. And, and that, but ultimately, I just made the decision. It's not a democracy where it's like votes or, and it's not something where everyone has to agree. So I'll say, okay, I've heard what you've said. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This is the direction we're going in. And then so you, people disagree. But then once, once I say, no, we're doing it, then they commit. How long until you listen to everyone mm. that you decide? Is it in that same meeting <laughs> or you go home and think about it? <laughs> it depends what it is. So I think sometimes it's way too long that I'm thinking about it for way too long and it could go on for, say, it could go on for a couple of weeks. And I think other times it's too quick where I'm saying, no, we're doing this. And people are like, hang on a minute. That's, and it's that they feel I'm not listening enough. So I think it, it, it varies a lot, but it depends on what the decision is. So anything from in the meeting to within, within say, two weeks. You said you... To keep people around your inner circle, advisors, people that have done this, do you have any mastermind groups that you're a part of or any other CEOs that you yes. discuss things with? Yeah. So there's a really good group that I'm a member of and it's called 10X CEO and it's literally 10xceo.com. Tell us about yeah. it. So uh, it's really a group of venture backed CEOs in software companies and they have three tiers. Tier one is hundreds of millions of revenue and many of them are public. And then tier three, I think, is up to 30 million of revenue and they're smaller and then the middle guys. So they're all really good, but there's probably about 80 or 90 CEOs in that group. And we meet so that each group is about eight or 10. So there's, let's say, 10 groups. Each group meets once a quarter for two half days. And there's a really good format to make sure everyone is working through some of their challenges and opportunities. And then there's monthly coaching just with a coach. 
And then also like a, an event where every single one of those people get together. I think it's every 18 months. So how long have you been part of this group? I have been in the group since I moved to the US, which was 2020. So I reckon it's now just over three years. So was it recommended by an investor, someone you met at an event, or how did you even yeah. hear about this group? It was actually another CEO. It was another British CEO. So he came out here before me and was nicely ahead of me. And then when I was learning about how to set up here, I got introduced to him uh, via some, I think it was actually like Chamber of Commerce or some kind of government. It was really good. So him, him and I met and he gave me lots of great advice. And one of those bits of advice was this group. So that's how I how I found out about it. He's actually since sold his company and is no longer in the group, but that's more, a more recent event. Oh, they don't allow you just to stay on it, even like an alumni group? Uh, oh, this is alumni, yeah. So I don't know if they do anything, but there is like an alumni section. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Was there any question or topic that we didn't cover or if there's anything else you'd like to talk about your company, now's the time to do it? No, I think, I think in building a business, it's really important to have a clear intention of what you're trying to do because we talked about things like growing steadily and profitably, and that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's, it's, it's a certain type of business. And then raising capital is very different and um, has a lot of kind of advantages and disadvantages. So I think being really clear on what you're trying to do and having clear intent uh, rather than almost accidentally going along is important. And then I think focus is important as well. So I think most of us, including me, try and do too much. And, and really sort of narrowing down and narrowing down to something which is meaningful, which where, where you can be the, or could be the very best at that one thing. And that's something I've learned and I've spread myself too thinly for too long in the past. So I need to be focused. And I think the final bit is clarity. So uh, we work very hard in our company to create a lot of clarity for our people on, for example, why we exist, you know, what we do, how we will succeed how we'll behave, and also uh, what's most important right now. And uh, those are actually questions from a book written by Patrick Lencioni called The Advantage. And it's creating very strong and simple kind of messaging. So there's that kind of clarity in the whole company and, and constantly repeating that all the time. So uh, I think that's an important kind of um, mantra, I guess, that I followed. Okay, we'll have that and everything else in the show notes. Andrew, if anyone wants to find out more about you, yeah. your company, What's the best way to go about doing it? So our website is just enable.com. So it's really simple. And uh, that's it. you can become a, an expert on rebate management and how rebates can work for your business and drive revenue and profit in your business. Just go to enable.com. And I'm on LinkedIn and use LinkedIn as my main kind of social media platform. So feel free to connect. Fantastic. We're going to have that and everything in the show notes. For our audience out there, please visit thesiliconvalleypodcast.com to find out about this episode, our past episodes, and future episodes. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn. Happy to have a conversation. And with that, Andrew, thank you for taking the time today to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Good to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.